Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, management professor Geraint Harvey looks at a huge renewed interest in workplace automation and proposes a few ideas. The president of the College of Family Physicians of Canada, Dr. Brady Bouchard, tells us why so many medical school graduates are steering clear of family practice. And indigenous business leader Chris Sankey is upset at what he calls self-serving outsiders and he says they need to back off and leave us alone. So, let's get started. Story we picked off the conversation a few days ago with this headline. Companies are mitigating labor shortages with automation. And this could drastically impact workers. The piece was written by our first guest this morning, Professor Geraint Harvey, who is the private equity chair in human organization and a management professor at the University of Western Ontario in London. Professor Harvey, good morning. Good morning to you. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Companies and automation, as I mentioned uh, in our preamble going into this before the commercial break, Harv, this has been a discussion that's been going on since the 1960s. Humans terrified of the notion of being replaced by robots. And here we are somewhat 50, 60 years later, the conversation's still going on. But the robots are infinitely more complex and capable than they were or ever have been as long as this conversation's been going on. True? That's absolutely correct. And as a result, it's a different um, set of jobs that are being threatened uh, by, you know, the, the rise in automation and artificial intelligence. Right. And uh, you maintain, though, that rather than be afraid, and, and basically this whole thing has been a conversation about fear. Well, you know, human beings are going to be replaced by robots. And what on earth are we going to do with ourselves? Uh, and, and I mean, that's sort of been the tone all the way through. But you suggest, and you've done a lot of homework on this, and congratulations on the article, too, by the way. But you suggest that companies who use robots actually end up hiring more humans. How does that work out? Well, it's, it's certainly an argument that has been made. I wouldn't necessarily say <clears throat> I subscribe to it, and my concern is the way things have changed recently, but certainly, <clears throat> bear with me, um, the argument that has been made um, over the last 20 years or so is that the introduction of uh, machinery, the introduction of automation, actually generates jobs by a factor of two to one. So for every job that is lost, two jobs are created. Hmm. So there is some evidence to suggest that this, this could actually be a positive thing. My concern, and, and the reason why this is, is has kind of um, attracted a lot of attention, is that where we're at at the moment, never before has the argument been, been made that this is, this is categorically replacing jobs. It can be seen as a good thing. My concern is now that automation is being seen as a solution to the shortage of jobs. And, you know, once these jobs go, once they've been replaced, it's going to be incredibly difficult to, to roll back from, from that. So, as, uh, so the point is, though, that as, as companies scramble, Harv, to deal with this incredible labor shortage, I mean, the, the number of jobs available this weekend versus the number of people willing to fill them, uh, there's still a huge gap. And so you look to alternative methods to get the job done. So you're saying, though, that if once, they, once they cover off a job with a robot, it's never going to go back to a human, is it? It's it's highly unlikely uh, to be the case, and and we've got to remember we're in a very distinctive period at the moment, um, as a consequence of the pandemic, as a consequence of a um, uh, a drying up of the flow of of migrant labour into Canada. Right. Um, the situation prior to to twenty twenty and twenty nineteen. 
Uh, there was evidence emerging of this labour shortage, and, and this has been exacerbated over the last two years by you know, what the pandemic has done. Um, now, obviously, that's not going to be the same forever. Things are going to start opening back up. Uh, and it may well be the case that, you know, this uh, we are stepping into a, a different era in terms of how jobs are done. But my concern is that, you know, once we once we go down this path, you know, once you've made that capital expenditure, once you've made that investment, it's it's unlikely that you, you're then going to re- resort to um, uh, human labour. And the other issue that, that is really important is what jobs are being replaced. Right. Now, in the past, we've seen this this idea that, you know, we're okay. Uh, what we're getting rid of are these these jobs that people don't want to do. They're low paid, they're low skilled, they're unpleasant. Let's let the machines do those jobs. Okay, well, you know, there's, I suppose there's an argument to be made there, particularly if it's creating jobs. But what we're seeing recently is that it's the higher skilled jobs that are coming under threat from um, artificial intelligence, particularly. If we take the example of, of Amazon, if we look at what um, is being automated there, we're still having people doing the incredibly tough warehouse task right but it's management that has been automated you're having these um, algorithmic management systems so it's the more skilled the better paid jobs that are being uh, they're being squeezed and why is that you know human beings they have great levels of dexterity they can do these tasks they're better at them than the machines so there is a there's a multiple concerns just about what it's what it's doing in terms of the number of jobs available but what jobs are being threatened by this change as well. I suppose, Professor Harvey, too, it's uh, from a company, a balance sheet point of view, it's uh, it's much easier to, uh, to to buy a machine that does the job of an expensive manager uh, versus hiring a person on the warehouse floor who's going to make considerably less and be less of a threat to your bottom line. It's, that's, that's, that's just a cold calculation, too, isn't it? Well, it, it, it is. Uh, it is. That is the case, but we do also need to factor in the human element here. And one of the problems that, that has been, you know, that keeps um, cropping up with, with companies like the one I've mentioned is the fact that people don't respond well to this. This is this is not the kind of um, this is not this isn't good for for the sort of people doing the job, and ultimately, it isn't good for the company either. Right. But you're right in the sense that you know if you can reduce your labour expenditure. Um, this this one-off capital expenditure and whatever it costs to maintain these things, it does have a, a, a sort of cost uh, minimization impact on the bottom line. No question. In your piece, by the way, uh, you, you remind us of an exchange between Henry Ford and uh, the leader of the United Automobile Workers. Henry's showing off his uh, assembly line and says to the union leader, because uh, he's got some automated lines now, and he says to the union leader, the union leader how are you going to get these robots to pay your union dues? Uh, uh, uh. The union leader turns and says, well, how are you going to get them to buy your cars? And that's another point. Uh, workers are consumers. Robots are aren't you're absolutely right and i love i love that exchange i I use it regularly whether it actually happened we don't know but it's a beautiful way of of explaining the impact for the business you know reducing your cost does have a knock-on effect because you're absolutely right workers are consumers if you don't if you're not paying these people then you know you're you're losing your customer base right so this this becomes you know if you want to get into sort of marxian terminology this is a contradiction this idea that you can reduce your cost but actually what you're doing is undermining your business and yet the business development bank of canada's and some of their senior people are talking about uh in terms of dealing with this water worker shortage they're saying increase your automation up your robot component indeed and i suppose there's 
you know, if we, we just think about the issues that companies are facing right now, um, I, I don't have the most recent statistics, but we're looking at close to a million job vacancies aren't being filled. Yes. This, this is a concern, and I can appreciate that this is a concern. I think that moving the way that we're doing, using or seeing automation as the answer, I think is, is myopic. It's short-sighted. I don't think this is, this is the way that, uh, that we should be going. And it does mark, as I say, this, this major change in terms of how we see the impact of, of automation and artificial intelligence and what this is going to do for business. Mm-hmm. All, all, everything in its place, and perhaps this is a little ahead of itself and could stay that way without adult supervision. Am I summarizing it okay? <laughs> I, I like that, yeah. <laughs> Durant Harvey, thanks very much for this. It's a terrific article, sir. We very much enjoyed it when we first saw it and thought, we got to get this guy on the show. And thank you for making yourself available to us this weekend. Uh, that was lovely to hear and it's been an absolute pleasure Throughout the month of May here on CKNW, we're going to do a deep dive into some of the findings we've learned over the last couple of years about our healthcare system. One of the things that we're going to take a long look at is uh, something we're really quite alarmed about in British Columbia. That is the lower number of family doctors available to citizens. Uh, New survey numbers out indicating fewer graduates from med schools are choosing family medicine as a discipline, despite all of those shortages here and across the country. It's a situation that's causing the College of Family Physicians of Canada to suggest that our family doctor shortage is not just about large numbers of retiring physicians, but also structural problems that may be deterring new grads from becoming family doctors. Here to talk more about this is the president of the College of Family Physicians of Canada. A pleasure to welcome Dr. Brady Bouchard to the program. Dr. Bouchard joining us this morning from North Battleford, Saskatchewan. Good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Dr. Bouchard, although be it under some some strained circumstances that you reveal the lack of motivation from some young med students graduating into the workforce these days across the country, a tremendous financial disincentive to want to become a family doctor. You really have to want to be one, Dr. Bouchard, because the job doesn't pay as well as many others in the medical profession, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's not just about uh, pay sterling, although that's a component of it for sure. Uh, you know, we all know BC is a beautiful province with, with wonderful weather. Uh, why are there not family physicians in Vancouver and, sure. and elsewhere? Um, the trend over the last couple of years, we, we can't draw firm conclusions to it, but we're definitely seeing a decreased match into family medicine. And that's our medical students choosing appropriately. They're seeing what family practice is across the country um, and largely across the country, definitely in BC. It is less attractive. Um, you know, pay is certainly an, an issue with it. It's the pay model that we're paid under, which pays per patient, the right. fee-for-service model. Um, and the throughput from that, I mean, part of that model is that you're running your own business. And for anybody, you know, who's running their own business in an urban area in Canada right now, your costs are going through the roof. Trying to hire staff is next to impossible. 
Uh, and we just want to focus on practicing medicine. And certainly our new graduates don't want to be running businesses. So even just that uh, makes family medicine uh, fairly unattractive and uh, across the country. There's also, Dr. Bouchard, the reality of being a med school grad, which no, doesn't matter what province or what school you went to, uh, you're, you're, you're carrying a tab of somewhere between one and $200,000, and you're maybe in your mid-20s, and you're that in debt. So, And finally, you got your MD. So now it's time to make some dough and, and retire this enormous student loan. That's, that's a powerful player on the minds of some young med grads too isn't it yeah absolutely it is and and that that uh, debt is even higher for for canadians who are studying abroad uh who come back i i went to medical school overseas and came back with three hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of debt yikes 10 10 years ago um so there's there's a lot of financial pressures on medical students and and they're choosing to go into specialties that pay better um but again certainly it's not just about pay it's everything in family medicine right now i mean some of it is broadly across medicine uh overall but there's increasing paperwork burdens. Uh, patients aren't able to access, you know, specialist care. We know what patients need. We see them um, and we can't get them in to get them treated. Uh, and that causes burnout uh, because you're not able to do your job. Well, and that's and that, that is a problem. And if one thing we've learned over the past couple of years with this pandemic emergency, this critical healthcare emergency coast to coast to coast, is that our much vaunted healthcare system is not, well, let's just put it the other way. It's pretty darn fragile. And uh, we've seen far too many examples of that fragility over the last couple of years. How do we begin to restore some substance to the system? Yeah. We, we need governments to come to the table and, and redesign what family practice is. Uh, definitely there's broad investments in our healthcare system that are needed post-COVID uh, just to deal with the backlog. Um, but the College of Family Physicians of Canada has a model that uh, we think works. The patient's medical home, uh, which is just our phrasing, but it really means bringing a team of providers together, including family physicians, mm-hmm. where everybody can work at the top of their scope, um, where people aren't running businesses when they're trained to practice medicine, it includes nurse practitioners and clinical pharmacists, et cetera, um, uh, to best manage patient care. And, and there's uh, scattered models of that across the country, but it really doesn't exist as, as far as I'm aware of anywhere in B.C., uh, and that's certainly part of the problem in getting a family physician. So is there a model, though, Dr. Bouchard, you could point to us here in B.C. to look at and go, well, you know, at least they're doing it kind of right here. Maybe we should take a look at emulating some of their best practices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if government in BC is is listening, uh, we're happy as a college to talk to them about what that model is, where it is in practice right now. Uh, PEI is embarking upon that on the, on the other side of the country. They're redesigning their their uh, family medicine, their primary care system under this patient's medical model, where again people can work in teams, they can focus on clinical care, um, and it's more efficient for the system, right? So we know. Yeah, I mean, yes, uh, we can ask for more money for governments, and they're like, you know, we've given you as much money as we can. Uh, but it's certainly cheaper for you to come see a family physician in a clinic than it is for you to end up in ER uh, or not to get your, your medical problem treated until it's, you know, essentially too late or very serious. Um, so it's a smart idea for governments to come to the table and invest in family practice and, and primary care. Mm-hmm, indeed. And Dr. Bouchard, it's great to have you with us this morning, sir. Final question to you. We do appreciate your time. How do, how do, how do med students, those emerging from med school, seeking a, a, a practice, a family practice as a career, how do they avoid being the kind of small business operators they are compelled to be under the, the, the current system? Does your model include 
include some kind of cooperation from a business management partner type? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's different ways to run a, a patient's medical home, but uh, ideally they'd be health authority run clinics so you can avoid the business management part of it uh, entirely. Uh, and medical students are doing that already. They're moving to provinces that do have those other models. Mm-hmm. Um, they're moving out of BC, certainly, um, to, for the uh, medical students who want to practice family medicine. They're going to, to communities where they're able to work uh, under different pay models or different structures uh, of clinics where where they can focus on that clinical medicine. Interesting stuff. Uh, do you have a website, sir, that you could commend to our listeners uh, just by way of getting a, a chance to have a look at what you've cooked up and what you are proposing to governments in this country? Yeah, absolutely. If you go to Google and type in patient's medical home, um, uh, then we're the first thing that comes up. We're the College of Family Physicians of Canada or cfpc.ca. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Bouchard. It's great to have you on the show this morning. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So we're flipping through the paper the other day. I read the National Post on a daily basis, and this headline literally jumped off and bit me on the eyes. Outside intervention does a disservice to Indigenous communities that need to take control of their economic destinies. Self-serving outsiders need to back off and leave us alone. The author of this piece, Chris Sankey, is back with us this morning. Mr. Sankey is the CEO of Blackfish Industries in Prince Rupert. He is a former a band elected counselor has been a longtime business leader and is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute as well. Chris Sankey joins us from Prince Rupert this morning. Chris, good morning and welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you back with us, Chris. You and I have talked about this before. You continue to write, and you wrote a piece uh, uh, just a couple of months ago. The road to reconciliation has been marred by eco-colonialism. And yesterday's or this week's piece in the National Post basically carrying on the same theme. Again, uh, boiling it down to the subheader, self-serving outsiders need to back off and leave us alone. Give us some, put some meat on that bone for us, Chris, please. Well, I mean, when you take a look what's happened over the last, say, 10 years, uh, you take a look at how many non-government organizations are funded by foreign interest groups uh, to block Canada's natural resource sector. Uh, It's been extremely infuriating to so many Indigenous people because you have a lot of these organizations that are funded by activists such as uh, Mark Ruffalo and Leonardo DiCaprio, and you have uh, foreign interest groups that interfere overseas. I mean, everybody that uh, that comes into Canada that are part of uh, this uh, environmental agenda uh, continues to focus on British Columbia and, and Ottawa to, to change policy. So when you get people like that coming in, and all in the name of Indigenous uh, reconciliation or in the name of our, our communities, uh, you get an entire country thinking that so many of us in our communities have been just pushed aside and that somehow industry is just forgetting about us. Now, granted, industry always wasn't uh, the, the best player in the room, but uh, that has changed over the last decade. Mm-hmm. And now we have an opportunity to, to work with industry and to develop our own sole source revenue so we can be a part of Canada and not apart from Canada. So it's, it, it's very frustrating to, to watch what's happening. And you have, it's not just 
non-indigenous people that are doing this. It's it's our own people that are affiliated with these organizations in the urban settings, like right. Vancouver right. Or, or Toronto, including institutions. Um, you know, some of our greatest institutions have gotten themselves involved in a very misled narrative, and it's it's infuriating to our communities. Right. Uh, and, and again, I'm quoting now from from what you wrote uh, and you're talking about these outsiders. So you say, quote, I'm sickened of seeing our people struggle while solutions are within reach. I'm tired of watching individuals continuously mislead our communities and our governments. I wouldn't follow many of them into ankle deep water. Business isn't rocket scientist, but our communities are continuously led down the wrong path. Again, uh, what do you mean by that? Who's doing the misleading, and what is the what's the the substance of their message? Well, look, I I was just at a, a net zero conference in in Vancouver, and you have uh, regional in, indigenous representatives uh, or even organizations that are meeting with both our provincial and federal government. In these meetings, there are individuals that used to work, say, for UBCIC or other urban organizations that are non-government funded. Okay. And, and they are providing advice and with the assumption that all Indigenous people are against responsible resource development, that we're against energy, that uh, somehow we're pushed aside again, that somehow that nobody's listening to us. What's happening is that government is listening to a select few individuals, both indigenous and non-indigenous, on advice on how to work with us. Now, all of us are not under one umbrella. There are people, there are communities that preferably want to stay within the tourism industry. There are individual, there are, there are individual communities that want to look at energy uh, responsible resource development. There are individuals, communities that want to look at forestry. Mm-hmm. There's just, there is, I mean, not all one size fits all. And so what's happened is that the communities like mine and many others that are involved in port-related developments, energy opportunities around cleaner burning fuels to reduce emissions are, are being pushed aside and being completely forgotten about. Like an example, uh, the emissions cap policy, it just came out uh, in these last few weeks, last few months. Uh, I meet, I work with a number of indigenous leaders called the Simshian Roundtable. Okay. And none of them knew about the emissions cap policy, including all the way up through the corridor into Prince George, into Alberta. Not many, if not all, had no idea about this emissions cap. There was no consultation. There was no engagement. We weren't involved in the discussions once again. And it just seems to be a pattern by this government. Uh, both BC and the federal government need to do a better job when, cons- when consulting with their communities. I mean, I think it's absurd that uh, we have both levels of government speaking to individuals. This is a fact speaking to individuals that have had no prior experience working with big business. Mm -hmm. I mean, at one point, uh, Sterling, uh, when LNG was on the rise and it's coming back, uh, only better and stronger and cleaner and more and friendlier with the environment, the Coast Simshian had $650 billion of proposed projects in our backyard. And we weren't ready for all that. 
Uh, there was only four of us that were responsible for that. And we had so much, uh, there was so much on our plate. We've had to get all that information out to our members as best we can. And so at the end of the day, <clears throat> we have an opportunity to re-engage industry. But what I feel is happening is uh, a lot of the engagement when it comes to these opportunities have com- completely been missed by government. And I, I get so frustrated because on one hand, the government says we are their most important file, that we are their most important relationship. And then they talk about the, the climate change and the environment and how we'll only have a limited time if we don't do anything, that right. somehow the earth is going to you know, eat itself up. And then they turn around and they see or they approve, for example, Volpac. Then they turn around, they're looking at, you know, they know Cedar from LNG in Kitimat area and the Port Edward LNG and the Elizabeth government LNG. And there's been no real dialogue with the actual ministers. A lot of the work that's been done are, are be done by staffers or deputies. Mm-hmm. And so when these messages go out that are so polarizing, the government confuses so many people. They infuriate the environmentalists, they infuriate the indigenous communities, they infuriate the general public. And and it's so confusing at times because we don't know whether they're coming or going or engaging or what. And I don't know all the detail, but I do know uh, they've been getting a lot of misinformation Mm -hmm. about our communities that somehow, like I said, we don't want to see responsible resource development. And that's simply not true. You know, when I when I spoke with some Indigenous leaders, well, not some, many Indigenous leaders at the conference just last week, the the feeling that everybody has gotten that I've spoken to that are Indigenous leaders, one is there's there's a completely there there are governments that are kind of out of touch about what it is that Indigenous communities want, right? And I felt that I feel like the focus has shifted so far to the left that. They somehow think that we're going to switch a light, a light uh, switch off, and that Canada and BC is magically going to get off fossil fuels. So you have this big environmental push because of the messaging that this government, both levels of government, have continued to provide. That has been so aggressive. Mm-hmm. And then you got the environmental groups say, "Wait a second! You just told us that fossil fuels and oil, gas, all of this is bad." And now some of these projects are moving forward. So they're, they're perplexed. And I don't blame them. And I, I really believe that the messaging is, like I said, is so polarizing that it's, it has created such a divide in this country. And then you've got people that really believe that somehow we are going to get off fossil fuels tomorrow. That's never going to happen. I'm going to tell you right now, RBC just came out with an article for the next 20, 30 years, fossil fuels is going to double, if not triple, in use around the world globally. There is not an alternative that is going to be sustainable 
like the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. Uh, Chris, we've uh, seen a lot of uh, blockades, uh, traffic blockades during rush hour, peak rush hour times over the past few weeks here in Vancouver. Uh, Groups protesting uh, old growth forests and all of those sorts of policies. And I want to just read a quick quote that you wrote about the other day in response to this kind of thing. Meanwhile, quote, meanwhile, indigenous actors are paid to block Canada's responsible resource development sector, thus depriving their own communities of economic opportunities. Even our culture is being dragged into these struggles. Indigenous people using their regalia, which the media absolutely love at rallies protesting projects with majority indigenous support, is insulting to our people. My aunts and uncles and aunts taught me we never use our regalia other than at a ceremony marking a death in the community, a potlatch, or a feast. We talked about this before. Uh, when, uh, when the media shows up to cover whatever the protest is, let's get the indigenous people up front with the drums and the feathers and all of that. They love that. That'll get their attention. That'll get us on the 6 o'clock news, guaranteed. 100, 100%. Uh you know, when I watch what's happening on the CGL, where we have um, hereditary showing up in the regalia, it it, it seems to, the issue had seems to start, It, it I, I sh- let me back that up, it seemed to have started in that area and it trickled down to um, Lilu Island. And next thing you know, we've had so many people doing that. And when you speak to elders, and when I spoke to my aunts and uncles and my late uncles, a lot of people are very upset. Um, they felt that it was wrong. That should have never happened. That uh, much of our internal disputes between the hereditary and the elected should have been solved internally, and it should have never gone out into the limelight. And when I look around this country and I take a look at the challenges that many of our communities have, Nobody else is going through this. We have our challenges, but look, in our community, hereditary, elect, hereditary um, individuals who are born into their name in the bloodline, they're getting elected by the people, the very same people and families that support hereditary. And when I look into the Whitsett area, those challenges are still happening. And when I watch the results of the elected band council elections, none of those hereditary leaders got elected. Hmm. Not even close. So, I mean, it's publicized. This is public information. Sure. Like, every community sure. has to post their election results. And none of them got elected. And when I look around to all the other areas, like ours, and many others that, are, that do have a hereditary system, the hereditary leaders do get elected. And I know when I was at our table, I, I, I left it to go back into the private sector because I had had enough. It was time for me to move on. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody at our table had a traditional name or hereditary, had a hereditary uh, leadership position. And when we would talk about what was happening within our communities, the first thing they would talk about is we need to make sure our hereditary are alongside us, that we make sure they're a part of the decision-making process. And that's not an easy feat to take on because there's so much history behind the names, behind the process. Like mm-hmm. the general public would be ripping their hair out to try to understand it. So how is it that a small area, a small faction that is heavily funded and the very people 
that are trying to tell the truth about what is actually happening and how it actually proceeds, proceeds and how hereditary is supposed to be dealt with are always forgotten about and pushed to the side when it comes to the mainstream media. Yeah. And Chris, how is it that... Yeah, it's infuriating to me. None of our potential partners are impress- impressed rather, by protests, fancy rhetoric, and the use of cultural artifacts. Again, I'm quoting from your article. They're business people. Our resources and our business opportunities are valuable, but they have their limits. There are other places to invest. Other people welcome their interest and commitments. We're, we allow small minorities to destroy opportunities for the indigenous majority. These protesters are putting our futures at risk and condemning us to permanent poverty and cultural destruction. I guess if that's the case, Chris, why are they allowed to continue so unchecked and so, uh, 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 at the same time, deceiving the majority of of non-Indigenous people into believing they represent the majority? It's a good question. I mean, you take a look what happened with the Freedom Convoy and how the Emergency Act was uh, pulled out. These groups, the very same groups that are funded by the very same non-government organizations, or they raise money through GoFundMe, have created such a dissidence in the area and in the province and the country that if you try to stand up to them, acts of violence or threats have continued to come towards the general public. Take a look at TMX, Mm -hmm. the two sisters down there that are causing havoc for Blue Mountain or Blue River, where that is. And then the attacks of the CGL workers, individuals that had wielding axes, twi- axes, twenty yes, of them. Yes. And then let's take a look at the, these the, the protesters with the Pachida coming right into the community, and the communities have respectfully asked them to leave. But what these protesters do, the non-indigenous protesters, they cling on to a select few of indigenous people within the community, and while they get around that is say, well how they get around that is they say that, well, we were invited in by the one hereditary leader, or we were invited in by a select few of the indigenous people, but the vast majority of our communities don't want them here. They, they're just fed up. Mm-hmm. Like we, and yet the, the violence that is taking place at these protest camps and the amount of dysfunction that has happened at these protest camps is absurd. A friend of mine, Jeff Russ, a Haida Gwaii uh, uh, journalist, did a whole story on TMX and how they completely misled the general public. That community is in that area uh, that, the, that the protests continues to have with the tiny house warriors have been completely railroaded by two people and a heavy hand of cash that continues to fund them. Yeah. Chris, I have to leave it there. I'm afraid I'm out of time. I'm always grateful for yours. And and I'm just commending your column. It's in the National Post. Google it. Uh, Chris Sankey's latest outside intervention does a disservice to Indigenous communities that need to take control of their economic destinies. Self-serving outsiders need to back off and leave us alone. Chris Sankey and Prince Rupert, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.